We're going to try to get through the rest of this chapter. I don't think it will be too much of a struggle to do so, but you never know. We might get stuck on a point or a thought, and we may have to extend it yet again, but I don't think we will. And you might remember last week we began Ezra chapter 9 by giving you what we're titling this chapter uh, with the understanding that in another five years or ten years, we may do another study on the book of Ezra, and we may go a totally different direction with it. One of the things that I love about teaching and preaching expositorily, which is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is each time that you preach it, each time that you teach it, God's going to breathe fresh life into it. And it's going to come across some way different than it does this time. And so what I've been sharing with you is not the end all of the book of Ezra. When we get through the final chapter, it's not like we will have been, we'll be able to just check that one off the list and say, okay, we don't ever have to go to Ezra again. Uh, I believe that this has just been so timely and it's been what God had planned for us, even though I wasn't aware of it uh, at the time that we'd selected this book to start off on. It was, it's been such a blessing to me. I got a chance to share with a pastor friend of mine just this week how important the book of Ezra has been for our church through this pandemic and how God has uh, clarified how our response is to be the next time that something like this happens, uh, how we're to react to it, who we're to go to to seek counsel and direction, and uh, how we're to live our lives in the middle of things like what we're going through now, and it's just been phenomenal, and I've enjoyed it so much. Now here we are in chapter number nine, and you'll remember last week we titled this The Great Falling Away. The Great Falling Away, and we spent some time uh, looking, uh, first of all, at the sin of the children of Israel. In the first two verses, it's laid out for us what their sin consisted of. There was no separation. They were involved in what the Bible refers to as abomination, fornication, and insubordination. All of those things combined is why God uh, confronts them through Ezra to reprimand them and get them back on the right track. And I shared with you one of the things that I respected. Uh, look at verse number one. It says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, and they confessed to Ezra all the ways that they failed God chiefly, and not remaining separate from the other false gods and false religions and abominations of the land. Uh, all these other countries that were around, they went and took their daughters to wife, their sons for husbands. And uh, of course, God had commanded that that not happen. But it was the princes that came to Ezra. Now I want you to look over at verse number two at the very end of the verse. It says, Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And so while it was the princes coming and confessing to Ezra what had happened, they were willing, and, and I think that it's something to be respected and admired, that they were willing to take full um, account of their own actions. They said, we're the ones that started this, we're the ones that have done this more than anyone else. And I believe that their hearts were genuinely sorrowful, and we're going to look at that a little bit more today, which brings me to the next point, and that was the sorrow they experienced in verses 3 and four, you saw that sorrow produces self-denial, it produces silence, and it produces shame. And we left you on a heavy note last week, and that was very intentional. Intentional in that so many times we try to get to the end of a sermon, and we try to end on a lighter note. We try to end on a point that maybe isn't so confrontational, isn't so edgy, uh, maybe 
leaves us going home with a smile on our face. And I believe that there are times that preachers anyway do a disservice by not leaving things on a heavier note, by not allowing the Holy Spirit to have His way, by not allowing those things to weigh on us. One of the things that we have become expert at, and we're going to talk about it in the worship service today, is that we've become experts in washing away the shame of our sin. And we drown out the shame of sin in a number of different ways. One of the great disservices that social media does us in our age is it takes our minds off of things that our minds should be on and puts our minds on things that really don't matter a whole lot. Now, of course, that's not always the case. There are times that people use it for good things, for blessed things, for uh, relationship and friendship and, and uh, prayer and all of those. And that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are a lot of times that we use all of these different means and methods to drown out the shame that God wants us to feel over our sin. The Bible uses it, it says it this way, godly sorrow produces repentance. It's whenever I experience godly sorrow and I go through godly sorrow that I will actually repent in a lasting way. The problem is, is that we don't take the time to do that. Here, that was not the case. Ezra took the time. Look at verse 3. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Now, with all of this said, there's one other thing that I'm going to go over with you here that is kind of a heavy, weighty thing. And again, it's something that we try to avoid at all costs. I believe it's one of the reasons that a lot of Christians don't read their Bibles. And they would never come out and say that. They would, they would justify the not reading of the Bible by saying, I just didn't have time, or my life's just so busy, or just you name it. But I think that one of the great reasons why so many Christians avoid reading their Bible is to avoid the, the guilt that one experiences whenever the Bible speaks to one's heart. That doesn't happen here either. The reason that this chapter, I believe, is so important is because it teaches us how to rise up out of a fallen away position. We talk about the falling away like it's the end all. Like once you fall away, it's over. It's done. You can't ever get back. And that cannot be further from the truth. On the contrary, the Bible says a just man falls seven times and he rises up again. And so the falling away is not the end all. Once you've fallen away, it doesn't mean you can't get back. It doesn't mean you can't get back up on your feet and get back where you're supposed to be with the Lord. In fact, that's what the Christian life consists of. It consists of falling into sin and then getting that right and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict and allowing the Word of God to come along and, and mold us and shape us and guide us and getting our feet back on right track. The Bible's chock full of examples of this. We won't take the time to go over them, but the Bible's chock full of examples of that. So we're moving on from the sin and the sorrow to what I'm calling the scolding. The scolding. The very first thing that Ezra apparently does, now we're not told where he reads from, we're not told what he reads. But the very first thing that Ezra does after he rends his garments, plucks the hair off of his head and his beard, 
and sits down in silence. And again, we don't know how long he sat down in silence. A long time, I imagine. But I want you to notice in verse number four what Ezra does. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. We're not told what he reads. We're not told how he expounds on it. But apparently, at some point between them first confessing it and Ezra's heartbreak over what's happened, to verse number 4, Ezra preaches the Word of God. He gets a hold of the Word of God and he reminds the people what God has said. What God's expectations are. And their response is striking. It says that they trembled at the words of the God of Israel. That is another emotion, personal experience that is nearly non-existent in our day. People trembling over the Word of God. And it could have a lot to do with the preacher. It could have a lot to do with the message. But the fact that very few people get to a place where they revere God and His Word so much that when they break what it says, it causes them to tremble when they hear it again. That's what takes place here. And I want to take a minute and consider this scolding. Scolding is never fun. I can never, I can never remember a time where I was scolded by someone and I thought, man, this is great. What a blessing. So glad that happened. In fact, on the contrary, I can remember times I got scolded over things that I felt like I shouldn't have been scolded over. And I can remember the pride that would whelm up in my heart and I would get very frustrated and, and very angry, very agitated. I can remember scolding from my parents when I was a child. I always deserved that, by the way. There, I can't remember a time that my parents scolded me that I did not fully deserve it. Um, no, I think every one of them I had coming. We've all been through that, haven't we? And it's never pleasant in the moment. But as I look back in my childhood and I see the times that my father scolded me, I, I think I've told you the story before, but one of the, one of the worst I ever got, uh, I was told by my dad, he said, take the golf cart to the barn. Well, really simple task. If you knew where I lived and how I grew up, the barn was about 150 yards from the house and there's nothing in the way. It's just a green yard between the house and the barn. The barn door was already open. There was nothing inhibiting me from getting the golf cart from the house to the barn. That's what he told me to do. So I go outside, and my cousin had just gotten a job at the post office. And he basically, of course, if you've ever worked at the post office or ever seen somebody that works at the post office, if you drive your own vehicle, you've got to figure out how to drive in the middle of the car. I had to do this for about nine months. I served as a postal worker for about nine months as a sub. And I used a little uh, Ford Taurus, and I had to sit in the middle seat, and I had to drive with my left foot and my left arm, and I had to deliver the mail with my right. And so I thought, here I am, 14 years old. I thought, man, it'd be kind of neat if I could get this nailed down. And so I jump in the golf cart, and I, I scoot over to the middle of the seat, and I put my left foot over on the gas pedal and my left hand on the steering wheel, and I'm driving along, driving along. And I'm on my way down to the barn. I thought, well, I, I need a little more practice. And so I decided I was going to go around the edge of the yard 
all the way around the edge of the yard. And so I start around the edge of the yard, and it was harmless. I thought, what could possibly go wrong? And so I'm driving around the, the edge of the yard, and I get around the back of the house. I'm driving, and I'm getting there. I'm getting better. I make this turn here, and as I start back, there's this branch that sticks out of the woods, and it's, I'm going to hit right on in it. And so I ducked so I didn't get slapped in the face by the branch. And when I came back up, our great big LP gas tank was sitting from me to the wall from me. Plenty of time to stop if you're driving with your right foot. But I was driving with my left foot. And instead of hitting the brake, I punched the gas. <laughs> and I went head first as fast as the golf cart would go into that. It literally threw me out of the front window of the golf cart into the gas tank. Now, I am at this point met with a moral quandary. How in the world do I explain to my dad that I run into the gas tank over there and the barn's down there? What do I do? Well, I'd been whooped enough in my life that I learned that you don't just don't say anything. You got to go and just fess up to it. And so I went straight into my dad. I said, Dad, I wrecked a golf cart. He goes, What? I said, I wrecked the golf cart. He said, how in the world did you wreck the golf cart? I said, I ran. <laughs> I'm thinking back to this now. It really is hilarious. I said, I, I ran into the gas tank. He said, you ran into the what? I said, I ran into the gas tank. He said, how in the world did you run into the gas tank? I said, well, I was driving around. I don't know if I ever actually told him I was driving with my left foot. <laughs> I'm pretty sure... All I, have, I think I probably need to call my dad this afternoon before we take the Lord's Supper tonight. Get that taken care of. But uh, I'm pretty sure all I ever told him was I was driving around the edge of the yard and there was a branch and I ducked. When I came back up, there was the gas tank and I hit it. And of course, then the scolding ensued. And my dad was always excellent. He never, he never, ever, ever never one time cursed at us boys growing up, never one time used inappropriate language. He was harsh, very harsh. He never got, let us get away with anything. I can't ever remember a time that my dad, knowing that we had done something we shouldn't do, let it go. He always dealt with it in the moment. And he always explained to us why we were being disciplined. And that scolding was never fun. But I look back on it now and those times of scolding were the teachable moments that shaped each of us, his sons and his daughter, into what we've become today. And I look at it as God's scolding on us through his word here in verse number four, essentially is meant to do exactly the same thing. And instead of avoiding that scolding, instead of trying to drown out that scolding, instead of trying to fill our lives up with all kinds of other things, it is essential to endure the scolding. In this particular case, we find that God's Word brings about, first and foremost, conviction. Conviction. When the Bible says there that they trembled at the, word, uh, at the words of the God of Israel, that is exactly what that means. It means that they experienced a deep level of convic conviction that shook them to their core. It literally rattled them, physically rattled them, when they considered how they had disobeyed a holy and righteous God. That is a sensation that the church desperately needs today. 
The church desperately needs a fresh sense of the convicting power of the Word of God. And without it, without it, this falling away will take over. Every church that, that avoids this, every church that, will, that refuses to allow God's Word to fully speak to a congregation and to convict a congregation, any church that avoids this kind of a response, for whatever reason, seeker-sensitive, want to make people feel comfortable, want to make sure they go home happy, whatever the reason is they avoid it, they will fall away. An essential part of me not going headlong into rebellion as a teenager was the scolding of my father. My dad come along and say, hey, hey, well, no, you're not going to talk to your mom like that. I'll never forget, I was 16 years old, and I decided to blow my breath at my mom one time. I never talked back to her. I knew that meant death, potentially. And so I, I had one time mom said something, and I went, Phew. And I don't even know what hit me, y'all. I'm serious. I don't even know what happened. All I know is I never did it again. My dad was quick to scold, and he was accurate in his scolding, and what he said was important to me, and that's what God's Word is meant to do to us. But we've got to expose ourselves to it. That's what we oftentimes fail to do. God's Word brings about conviction. Number two, God's Word brings about correction. The whole idea in conviction is not just to pound us on the head. The idea is not for God to just make us feel awful and belittled and insignificant. The idea is to correct what's wrong. Good discipline is always meant to correct what's wrong. It's never meant to just be a pounding of the person experiencing the discipline. The whole idea of discipline is to take incorrect behavior and correct it. Get it right. That's what God's Word does in our lives if we allow it to. God's Word brings conviction. It brings correction. And there are times that God's Word needs to bring clarification. Did you ever have a time where your parents set for you some guidelines and you didn't quite fully understand? The, at least that's what you told them when you got caught. You didn't really understand the guidelines. Didn't really fully comprehend what they were trying to tell you. I feel like that's 90% of what I'm doing with my children is clarification right now. At this stage of their lives, I feel like most of what I'm having to do is clarify. Okay? When I said, go put on your pajamas, I did not mean take your normal clothes off and run around the house in your underwear. I meant go to the laundry room, find your pajamas, and put your pajamas on. When I said I don't want you to eat a cookie, I didn't mean that you can climb into the pantry and find you a granola bar. I meant I don't want you to snack. That's what I meant. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on about clarification. And I believe that that's something that God longs to do with His Word in our lives as well. One of the natural tendencies that we have as Christians is to justify our behavior. It's something that little children do, but grown Christian adults do the same thing with God. We try to explain to God why it is that we won't do this or why it is that we do that. And all the while, God has clarified for us what He expects. He stated plainly for us what He desires. But again, 
unless we expose ourselves to the scolding, unless we allow Him to say to us what needs to be said, we'll just continue to fall away and fall away and fall away and fall away. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 7. Hold your place in Ezra. We'll be right back there. Look at Romans chapter number 7. Romans chapter number 7, and we'll jump in at verse number 7 here. It's a passage of Scripture that we oftentimes overlook because we always, when we go to Romans chapter 7, we always jump in at verse number 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. And we go through that, and of course, verse 24 and 25, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But previous to Paul saying all of that, is this passage we're going to read right here. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. Understand one of the great purposes of the Pentateuch of your Bible. That first whole section of your Bible was meant to clarify for us what sin is. Now look on, it says in verse number 7, it says, but, uh, for, Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, which is the word lust, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now I'm going to give you an illustration of verses 7 through 9. You ready? Wet paint don't touch. What do you do? Every time without fail, tell me what you do. You touch the wet paint, don't you? That's what that, those verses mean. It, the idea is when, the law, when, I, when I learned the law that said, Thou shalt not lie, all of a sudden sin, finding an occasion with the law, using the law in my life, convinced me that maybe, sinning was the, or that maybe lying was a better way to go. It said, don't covet. And so all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm coveting. It said, don't steal. And now all of a sudden, I feel like I should maybe take things that aren't mine. That's what the verses are basically saying there. Verse number 10, in the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking an occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. He's getting down to the deep, dark crevices of the soul that we never visit. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, my heart is so twisted, my heart is so deceitful that it actually can take the commands of God and turn them around to cause me to lust for the very things God tells me I should not lust after. Now with that said, look at verse number 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. He's saying the commandment is not the problem. My sinful nature is the problem. In fact, let me tell you what the commandment is. Verse 13, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You know what he's saying? My heart is so sick and twisted that it can take the very commands of God and cause me to lust after the things God says I cannot lust after. 
It's not the commandment's fault, though. It's my twisted heart's fault. It's my sinful nature's fault. And at the end of the day, were it not for the commands of God, sin would have never become exceeding sinful to me. The idea is when God says thou shalt not lie, when God is the source of that command, one of the great failures of preaching today is tying good behavior to the law of God. What we've done is we've disconnected entirely the thought that God said it, so we need to do it. Instead, we just go straight to the we need to do it part. And we leave the fact that God said it out of it. That's one of the great failures of preaching today is that we've disconnected those two things and we just want to, pre- we want to preach and teach folks to be moral. Just be good. Just be kind. Just be pure. You name it. We just want to say this is what you ought to do. But we detach the fact that a holy God has said some very harsh things about people who don't. We've got to be able to endure the scolding. We've got to be willing to expose ourselves to the Word of God in such a way that allows God to have His will and way with our hearts. I understand it's not pleasant. I get that. I I completely understand that. Scolding's never pleasant, but it's in the scolding that God reaches down into our hearts and by conviction, by His Holy Spirit clarifying some things and teaching us some things and correcting some things in our lives, He gets us from that place where we've fallen away and gets us back into close communion with Him, which brings us to the final point. Um, I think we might be able to make it through. The supplication. The supplication. We've got five minutes. I think one minute per point I can get through this. The supplication. So there's the confrontation of the sin. There's the emotion of sorrow. There's the endurance of the scolding. And then we come to the supplication in verses 5 through 15. There's no way we'll get through this, but we'll at least get through the first one. (laughs) Y'all were thinking it. You just were too kind to say it, weren't you? Look at verse number 5 with me. The Bible, Ezra here, of course, the Word of God has been preached. Folks are shaken to their core. He's brokenhearted over what's happened in Israel. And now he gets to a place where he realizes there's only one place I can turn. Verse number 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. And said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands to the sword to captivity and to a spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in His holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, 
What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by the servants of the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from the end of uh, to one from one end to the another with their uncleanness now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons neither take their daughters unto your sons nor seek their peace or their wealth forever that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass seeing that Thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, We are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. There's one word I want to point out to you, and then we'll go over Ezra's supplication next week because there's a lot to unpack in those verses. Too much for us to unpack here. But in verse number 15, I want to point out one word. It's the word our. Down most of the way through the verse, it says, The Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are are before thee in our trespasses. Who's praying? Ezra's praying. Ezra just got there. He's only been there for three days. His whole life has led up to this moment. And there's no doubt as he's leading this large group of folks into Jerusalem, that maybe I'm wrong, but... It would be a very difficult thing to not be touched by a little bit of pride. As you're looking at your land that you were kicked out of, and now you're returning, and you're the one leading these, these, these final, this final group into Jerusalem to begin to worship God the way He always intended, there had to be a level of excitement that would just about make you burst. He's just walked in, and then he finds out that all these people that had come years before that had built a temple have now fallen away completely fallen into the hands of the enemy, not through them coming in and conquering, but through immorality, fornication, abomination. But Ezra does not distance himself. He does not separate himself. He does not say, God, look what they've done. He says, our trespasses. That's true leadership. To recognize that he's leading a group of people, he's taking full responsibility, and he's carrying the trespasses of Israel on his shoulders to God himself. That's why I believe he says our trespasses. You know... One of the things that we tend to do is we tend to distance ourselves and separate ourselves. But you know what I believe as the reason Ezra can say our trespasses in verse 15? It's because he really loves these people. And he's willing to go through the same judgment with them 
that they must endure. The same scolding, the same sorrow, the same confrontation of sin. He's prepared to go through it with these folks because they're his folks and he loves them dearly. And I think about our children, I think about our grandchildren, I think about our sphere of influence. One of the great mistakes that we make is when wherever we cut off and separate and distance ourselves from those who have fallen away because we've all been there. And what we do whenever someone falls away, first thing we do is we kick them while they're down. Can you believe what so-and-so has done? Can you believe where so-and-so is at now? Ezra says, our trespasses. He goes right into the heart of it. And he confesses. And he lays it out before the Lord. For the people. And then he wraps his arms around and tries to get them back. That's what it's all about.